So um, welcome to the Topco Business Unusual podcast. Today I'm joined by uh, Paddy Upton, a renowned author of uh, The Barefoot Coach, Cricket Coach, and uh, Top Guy. Paddy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for the invitation. I look forward to spending the next hour or so in conversation with you guys and with your listeners. Thanks, man. So we're going through some crazy times. Yes, we certainly have been. Um, and I think that one of the things that certainly in, in conversations with individuals and businesses is one thing that's common is that we are all going through very different stages and experiences and cycles of this journey. Even though we're all in the same boat, we're having fundamentally different experiences. That's because of our environment and stuff, I suppose, right? A lot of it to do with our environment. Um, I mean, there's a natural one. Thing, although this is unprecedented times we're navigating, the certainly the emotional and the mental and emotional journey for a lot of people is what is the biggest difficulties and challenges at the moment. Um, as we go deeper into it, we will certainly find that more tangible, material, economic um, pains is what we'll be feeling. But a lot of it at the moment is actually psychological and emotional. And one thing we do have is we've got a fairly good framework or idea of how people navigate mental and emotional trauma. So we, we do have a framework, at least how to manage ourselves through this time that's unprecedented, then we don't actually know how to manage our way forward because there's a whole lot of unknowns. But within ourselves, there's quite a lot of stuff that we can actually um, use from uh, previous knowledge and knowledge of what other people have done when they've gone through similar type of traumas. And, and I mean, do you think, because we talk about ourselves, and <clears throat> I think coaching is quite a, in a way, an individual thing, but then I think about your successes coaching a world-winning cricket team India, and you actually got you, you brought many individuals together to participate in a team. Is this something that you feel that there's examples or frameworks for helping to coach teams and organizations through something like this? Well, I mean, one of the one of the frameworks that I've found to have been very useful, and listen, we're only early days in South Africa. We're two months into this, so everything is pretty new and fresh. But something that is really working well is understanding something of that trauma cycle and then using a coaching approach for helping individuals to identify, well, where am I at in this trauma cycle? And we'll talk a little bit to sort of at a high level, what does it look like? And that at least gives some perspective to what I'm feeling now to know that it's okay or it's normal and also to have some understanding of where to next and some tools that can help me to not drown um, in the situation. So particularly when I look at, for example, um, an athlete who's at the peak of their career, maybe preparing for a World Cup event and they have a sudden career-limiting injury, so they do their knee ligaments or they badly damage a shoulder. 
that athlete who's had a very clear focus and that every single day they go to gym, they go to training, they on their diet, they've got their clearly fixed goal. And all of a sudden, the, the rug of their career is pulled out from underneath them. They didn't see it coming. The, they can't go to training anymore. They can't go to gym anymore. They've got this physical pain and with it is a, there's a lot of mental pain that's attached. They're not sure if they'll actually ever be able to come back and play at the level that they were. So they don't even know if that, if it'll ever be the same again. And they even sometimes need to face the fact that this might be the end of my career and I have no clue what I'm going to be doing next because I, I, I never thought about it. I've just been focusing on the upcoming World Cup. So that situation is very similar to what many of us have gone through with all of a sudden the, our careers have, the cops that our careers have been pulled out from underneath us. We're not able to go to work anymore. We're stuck at home, very much like athletes who can't go to gym. They can't go out to training. Um, so at least we can, we've got that as a frame of reference. It's similar to somebody, you know, who needs to go through, goes through, you know, a bereavement, the death of someone close to them. That's, that's unexpected. They go through a very similar trauma cycle, so coaching is useful to be able to help people understand what is the, the land, at least the emotional and mental landscape we're going to have to navigate. There are tools and coaching is useful for an individual to identify for themselves where they are and, to be, and along with somebody, which is often very useful, to navigate, successfully navigate their way through these difficulties rather than, which unfortunately will happen to some people, they will fall into the cesspool of negativity, of negative thoughts and emotions and take a long, very a lot longer than what's normal or required to actually come out of that space. Another another analogy that we I spoke to um, Ian Williamson, he's the CEO of Old Mutual. And actually they've invested a lot in education. Like mm -hmm. millions, millions. And I was like, okay, so that's fantastic. I mean, that's really great that you're doing it, but what's the sort of outcome that you've aimed for or that you've seen the impact that it's made? And he said, well, it's actually amazing because when they did it, they were just looking at matriculants and they were just looking at, they looked at the worst performing schools in South Africa and their goal was to, to help them in some way. And so actually what they did is they created, a, they facilitated some coaching and, a, and mentoring to the principals. And of the schools that they worked with, on average, they're able to double the success rate or the pass rate of the matriculants. And in some schools go from zero pass rate to 100%. And so how, how important is this for leaders to get coaching? I mean, that's just first of all, I mean, that's one, it's an amazing initiative from Old Mutual and not just investing in that, but actually choosing to focus on the leaders and to see the results of that. Um, and even in, even in good times, the leadership not only sets the direction of the, the, the ship effectively, metaphorically ship or the strategy of the business, but the leader really influences the culture. Now, the, when I talk about leader, it might not just be the CEO and a sports team, it not, might not just be the coach or the captain. Wherever the leadership influence comes from, that really influences the culture and the culture is the single biggest influences on employers or players minds. So I've always said, certainly in sport, um, you know, we, people think that the mind is so important for success, which I think is correct. And the sports psychologists and mental conditioning coaches 
are in charge of the mind. They're the people who skilled and trained to work with the mind. And yet very few teams, professional teams, have a full-time mental conditioning or sports psychologist. That The, the concept of a, a psychologist working with a team just does not work. Uh, or if it works, it's, it's very seldom that it works. And the reason being, I honestly believe, is because the psychologists come in to work with the athletes. Where the models where it really works is where the psychologist or the mental coach comes in and works with the leadership who then imparts that onto the team. And it's very much like a business. You know, I, I spent a lot of time in my early days of business as an executive or business coach being pulled in to work with individuals within a company or a team who were struggling and things weren't quite working. And it, it seldom had a systemic impact on the organization um, compared to if I only worked with one person that was the CEO and what they took for it from that conversation, they went and then employed back into the business. And then there was real traction, very much like the story you just explained by, by coaching the principles. It's amazing how a big an impact it makes on the learners. And I'm quite sure one of the things, one of the main reasons that would, without knowing anything about that um, intervention was that the principal would have been managing and coaching and working with the teachers in a different way who would then have passed that on to the pupils. So it really needs yeah. to be at the top level. I think I think he did mention that the coaches, the 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 headmasters, had to be a certain, you know, there was some minimum requirements. Like they wanted, they had to want to learn and that sort of stuff as well, right? Yeah, uh, and and want to change. Yeah. But I mean, I mean, you mentioned setting, you know, the leader's direction, and which is like a goal, which I mean, we'll probably talk about just now. But and then culture. And a lot of people, it means different things to different people. And you set a culture with the Indian cricket team, and and so I'm always interested. How do you how do you go into a new environment with people that you might have well, they're probably not not enemies but competitors, and shape their culture? How 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 important is that now? to realign cultures within organizations now? Well, to answer your question maybe slightly differently or maybe it's not, my firm belief has always been using a leadership or a coaching approach of what I call harnessing the intelligence or, or the wisdom that sits within the group as opposed to me arriving and imposing my so-called intelligence and wisdom onto the group. I arrive with questions and I look to extract it from within. So going to India, Gary Kirsten, myself, we didn't know the, we knew, didn't know these players very well. Uh, we didn't know the depth of the Indian culture and the diversity of the Indian culture. So we went in knowing that we didn't know the people, the team, the environment, the culture we were stepping into. So it actually made it very easy to employ our coaching approach of asking questions, seeking to learn, seeking to understand. And actually, our approach was to use the wisdom of the players to set the strategy, to set the culture. And by doing that, it's very difficult to fail because we extracted the best, the strengths that lay within that team, even though we didn't, we didn't understand them well enough to be able to go and impose our strategy and our ways onto them. So in a strange way, people said it must have been difficult 
going into a foreign country with foreign players. And because of our approach, it actually turned out to be really easy and it facilitated the approach. So I talk about, you know, strategy. You know, there's the old school model, and I know it's sort of the, the black and white of it is the old school model is the leader imposes the strategy on the employees or on the team, or maybe they go away with just the, the strategic leadership group, spend two days figuring the strategy and then go and present that directive to the employees. That doesn't get the buy-in. It's very easy, but it doesn't get the buy-in compared to if you engage the staff and engage the employees and extract the best thinking from pe people very often at the coalface often know more about the hands on what needs to be done and what works and what doesn't than the CEO sits in their office. That's, it's a bit messier. It's a bit more difficult, but the chance of extracting the best intelligence and getting the best buy-in is highest. And I think going forward now, we're going to such un uncharted waters, you know, to think that one CEO or one leader can come up with a vision of what needs to happen in the best way forward. It's, it'll happen, but not very much so. I think by engaging people in the conversation, having coaching conversations and extracting all the diverse thinking about how do we need to adjust course to keep the ship afloat and actually steaming forward. And what we need to be doing is, I'm jumping around here a little bit, but it, different industries are going to be impacted differently. We know that. Within each industry, there are going to be some businesses that survive, some that struggle and some that are actually going to, some will thrive and some will sink. But the reality is in almost every industry, a few businesses will thrive. And what's important is that whatever your business is or whatever your team is or whoever you're leading, you need to be in that top 10 or 20% of businesses within your industry and maybe even top 20% globally. And you'll be fine, you'll survive. So the question is, so what are the survivors going to get right? Those who manage to sell through this with the least amount of damage, they may able to adjust course as different things come at us and end up on the other side with a fairly stable ship once the waters get a bit calmer than what they are. And that, for me, that's really the big conversation is how do we ensure that we in the top 10% of businesses globally and in our industry? And then everything will be fine. Um, Paddy, um, so, I mean, you, you mentioned that going into a different team allows you to, to harness some of the questions. And I suppose really I have two things. One was that, do you think it's easier going in, in a fresh approach, someone who hasn't been in, in, immersed in the culture of organizations? Or do you think it is a benefit to go in there with a new approach? Um, Ralph, I think, I think each situation is possibly a bit different and it often depends where that particular team or organization is in terms of their almost life cycle or I sort of like to sometimes look at this kind of thing in, in terms of a performance clock almost. If you sort of take a 12-hour, uh, what do you call it? analog, what is that with hands, big hand and little hand, is that called analog? And it's the other one, yeah. So, you know, if, if you're someone new going into an organization that is on the, the downwards, on the skid, say sort of from three o'clock that is going downwards and things are going bad, where if it's six o'clock, which is the bottom of the clock, things are at their worst. Yeah. And even coming off six o'clock to six, seven, eight o'clock, if you're coming to a new organization like that, very often 
what is required is very strong and decisive leadership. Yeah. So it's more relevant to then know what you're doing, know the industry, know something, you know, to be able to come in and you're going to be providing direction. Whereas if you, if someone is joining a team at sort of anything from sort of eight o'clock when it's early days of starting to be on the rise, the systems are starting to click into place, the culture is starting to develop, communication channels are opening up, um, people are getting into more of a problem-solving mindset and working quite well together and there's good clarity. That's a good time. You don't. Then I don't believe it's as important to be a content expert as a leader um, and one can come in then and really use a coaching, empowering, harnessing the collective intelligence approach to leadership where you're really handing over a lot of the decision-making, a lot of the power over to the people at the coalface, so we're the employees or the players. So Gary Kirsten, I probably inherited an Indian cricket team at nine o'clock. Um, they had a 50% win ratio in test cricket. In, in one-day in one day cricket, they had a 50% win ratio. In test cricket, a 30% win ratio, which is not that good. But they had the players. They had a fairly good system. Um, we were able to have a really empowering approach at that space, whereas... As I said, if you're at six o'clock, it's a slightly different approach. So each situation is unique and it's important to understand where is this team and environment at and where have they been. Um, you know, I'm jumping around here, but I, there's, there's some, for example, mm. leaders both in business and sports who have a certain way that's really worked and they get a reputation for taking a, an organization and turning it around and having great results. And they do that because their default approach actually matched where the organization team was at. And then they get headhunted to another organization and they think, well, the way I did it works. And, I, and they go into the next organization and don't really pay attention. They just do their thing that worked in the previous place over again, which we've seen that certainly in a lot of sports teams. A successful coach, one team moves to the next team at you know, 50% salary increase and that team just does not go anywhere. And it's because the leader hasn't adapted their approach to meet where the team is at and what they're requiring to move them to the next hour, if I use that uh, clock as, an, as the example. Are you talking about Jose Mourinho? Well, I think you, that's it's probably why that's a very, very good example. Here's a way that worked in one place and he went to another place and the team was in a different space, needed a different type of leadership and it really did not work, his approach. I mean, I love Jurgen Klopp and I think I love him because he came from the under teams and I have huge respect for Alex Ferguson and I know he did well in in Scotland but he hasn't, he didn't move that same methodology to numerous teams in, in different situations where I, I don't know, what do you, are you a, a Klopp fan or? So, so I'm more of a, a fan of a leader who's got awareness of their default approach and awareness of the different available approaches and what is required for different teams and different individuals so that they're able to move themselves and their default way out of the way and meet the need of the people they're leading, which is quite a rare skill, certainly in sport coaching. Is um, there any, any that you 
come top of mind for you? Um, not really, no. Um, I think, you know, if I were to take a step, when it comes to training, coaching sports coaches or training sport coaches, what, what we do is they go through a series of courses where they learn the technical, tactical, and strategic nous of the game, which any coach who's played the game has already got that. And they arrive to lead teams with very little knowledge of how to lead people. They've got a no- lot of knowledge of how to play the game which is sort of your scientific, technical, tactical, strategic part of the game, where actually um, more and more today, not only in, in business, but also in sport, having the right kind of culture that extracts the best out of individuals. And, you know, you want to, you want to be doing in, in any team is you want to be having the kind of culture that attracts the best people. You want them to phone you and say, I want to play for your team or work for your business. Um, when you get the best people, you want to keep them the longest, not just have them do what they need to do and then move on two years later to the next better opportunity. But probably even more importantly is not so much attracting the best and keeping them the longest, but the majority of organizations and teams, you only have a few superstars and then you've got the, the bulk of people are above average performers, let's say. And I believe success is of more available now if you can take those above average performers who let's say deliver at 60% if you can get each of them to be just upping their game and delivering at 70% you're getting the bulk of the team or the workforce delivering at 10% more than what that same group are delivering in in your competitors whether sports teams or business teams then you really are exponentially getting ahead um, and to me that's coaches aren't trained in that uh, and if we take a step to the left and if we almost any really good leadership course available anywhere in business at the moment in the, in the, in the business world talking just business and not sport you'll find that one of the single most important components in every single one of them will be self-awareness not teaching the leader how to lead, but teaching the leader how to reflect and understand who they are being while they're doing what they're doing. So self-awareness, you know, if you, the more aware you are of your way, your default way, your strengths, your weaknesses, your light, your shadow, and you can adjust your approach to meet the needs of the people leading, um, to me, that's sort of the big picture tick that you need to have that sets you up with the best possible chance of success as a leader and then within the organization. Because there is these analogies, rightly so or, or not, around business and sport. Do you think that that is a good correlation that we can learn a lot from sport and we can learn equally the same from business for sport? Um, so I think the key here is to learn. And very, it's often a lot easier to learn something when we pick our head up and we look into another industry. It might not necessarily be sport across the business or business to sport, but it, um, you know, it might well be business might look at, at, at theater. Um, I know certainly at sports, you know, and the coaching cricketers, I, I draw stuff from surfers, um, from free dive, the breathing stuff from free divers and managing their mind. In terms of performance and being in flow, uh, we work with, I've pulled in people from the theater um, industry. So what's important is just to be learning. 
so sport and business can learn from each other, but I think even at a, at a smaller uh, scale, you know, I think, you know, just look at somebody in a different industry and say, what have you done to get ahead? And the important thing is not what you did, but translating that learning back to, so how is this relevant for us? So manage, breath hold training is all about managing the mind when it comes to surviving big wave surfing or um, free diving. And I translated that back into cricket. So how does this help us manage our mind in cricket when we're not holding our breath and underwater? But the translations are amazing if you choose to go out there and look for where can we learn from someone else who's pushed the, the limits of human potential and how do we bring it back into our space? And I mean, um, obviously these individuals, this continuous learning that or this growth, I mean, I sometimes look at the education system generally i think in the world it's sort of broke right um i think let's let's go with the word broke um i'd use stronger, I'd use stronger language but it's <laughs> not doing it's the, not getting us to think and learn in a way of like you're saying in comparison to i think that isn't the school system sort of preparing our kids to work on production lines and just be good, diligent little followers of instruction. That if they do what the teacher tells them, they get the blessing from the balcony. If they happen to think for themselves or think differently, they get marginalized or sidelined. Well, they're not good doing a good job because my kids just do not listen to me at the moment. So, No, <laughs> no I, think we, I think we're falling woefully short in our current education system when it comes to preparing kids for life after school. And are you seeing anywhere that is working, like the Scandinavian sort of system? I mean, do you see do you see countries like you work with the Indian cricket team? Do you see when you travel around the world and explore these different cultures? And I know you like traveling. Do you see some cultures that transcend more of a learning, open mindedness? Um, yeah, such a broad question. I don't really have a intelligent answer i could suck something out my thumb to sound intelligent but i haven't really looked at that closely enough and you know there's pockets everywhere but it's and it's just about asking what is this for me it's always been in whatever field we're talking about be it education be it marketing be it hr be it leadership in five years time will we be doing the same thing we're doing today question one Almost always the answer is probably not. The next question is, do we know what we'll be doing? Probably not, because if we did know what we were doing five years of his time, we'll be doing it now. And then the next question is, okay, so what do we think the smartest people in the world, in this field, are going to be doing in five years' time? And let's go in aggressively in pursuit of that answer. Uh, and we want to, rather than wait for someone to come up with a clever education system, Let's go out and figure out at least what are the cleverest people in the world at the moment doing in this particular area, and let's see if we can move beyond that and come up with something smarter, something cleverer, something more innovative, something more relevant and practical to today. And if you're doing that, you're at least at the head of the pack, but probably a front in front of the pack. And you know, for me, that's always been my mindset. And with people that I work with, it's let's find out what the best in the world are doing. And let's innovate beyond that. And is that relevant to now, do you think, where people are just trying to survive? 
I mean, I, I agree with what you're saying. Now, if I think of someone like Elon Musk, I know that he saw technologies in terms of like solar and electricity and battery power. And, and that's almost with Tesla. He sort of looked at a 10 year scale and he saw those those technologies exponentially growing and the price point decreasing and the output doubling. And he, and he sort of looked at the curve over a 10 year period. And he said, look, this is where the electric car is going to be. And so he invested his future 10 years before Tesla is where it is now. Yeah, I get that. But I sometimes wonder right now with a lot of organizations and maybe it was before this, to be fair, I saw that there was this digital disruption coming and I often went to, to coffee shops and I saw executives in high powered positions. So it looked like they're enjoying themselves. I think to myself, Jesus, do you know what's coming? And what has come has been far worse than any of us ever anticipated with like a digital disruption to how it was. Is this the time to make those plans now? Um, if I take a step back, and I alluded to at the beginning of the conversation, that there's sort of a process that we're, most of us are going to move through, and it's not a very linear and clear process, but if I were to sort of just to give it some labels to paint a, a picture at a very high level, um, through this COVID period and what's happening, as I said, it's different to different people, but we're going to go through a a downward dip of negative thoughts and emotions. And those are things like blaming people, others. There will be things like fear, stress, anxiety, anger. And if the stress, anxiety, fear lasts longer than what it needs to, we start moving into depression. And unfortunately, one step beyond that, if we stick around there too long, suicide is something that is a, is a, a reality that we need to be aware of. So there is a natural dip in a mental and emotional uh, in this journey. And most of us are going to go through it to varying degrees and it'll sometimes it will come and it will go. Some of us get stuck into it. I certainly had quite a lot of that for the first two weeks of lockdown. I find myself in this negative cycle of thoughts which creates negative emotion. That's all normal and it's okay. And there's, there's certain we need to understand that we're going through that. We need to be able to identify it. And there's certainly tools to be able to help us healthily navigate those very normal experiences. Without the awareness or without the tools, we sink into that space, as I said, and then depression, inertia, and problems occur. The next sort of phase is almost a leveling out. Um, and if I were to use an analogy, the first phase of the negative dip, it's like being in the water uh, in stormy waters, having fallen overboard like Brett Archibald did, you spoke to recently. That's when your head's underwater and you're actually struggling. You're taking on water, you're struggling to get breath, and you feel like you're drowning. The next phase of leveling out is it's almost like, okay, I'm still in these stormy waters. It's still chaotic. I'm still overboard, but I've got my life ring. And that life ring just stabilizes us. And that life ring is, for example, having perspective of my life, of working at home. How's this going to work? How I'm going to manage my days with the kids here and with a homeschooling and with a wife and not being able to see my mates. And okay. So having some perspective of how am I going to manage that? Uh, starting to have some clarity of direction way forward in all the different areas of my life and start being able to build the resilience muscles to prepare for this journey that lies ahead of us. That's sort of the leveling out. And once we've leveled out and we've got that perspective, we've got that focus 
Um, we've got some built our resilience muscles. We're not drowning. We've got tools to be able to navigate through the fear. Then we move, start moving on the upward cycle of learning, of growth, of building, of innovation, and actually living in and creating whatever the new normal is that we're moving into, depending on your industry and, you know, yeah. so there is that downward dip. There's the leveling out and there's the increase and different people in the same business and the same organization are in very different phases of that cycle. And they have very different needs that those individuals are needing to be met. And I think that's one of the big leadership challenges at the moment. And I'm certainly finding I'm dealing the, the clients I'm working with, I'm dealing with such a diverse range and array of mental and emotional states before we can actually get to where we're going as a business. We need to stabilize people and know who can be actively participating in where this business needs to go and who needs to just be able to be given the time to stabilize themselves. Um, Crazy, eh? And, and you gave the Brit example. What a legend Brit is, eh? Yeah. Um, no, I think it's amazing, you know. You know, one of the other things that's interesting, we all know it, but it's, um, you know, the at this stage during lockdown, for example, the pessimists are struggling much more than the optimists. Um, the extroverts are struggling much more than the introverts. The introverts are loving this time, in speaking generally. The, the, the extroverts are really struggling. Um we have the people who we have some people who are living by themselves, business executives living by themselves. Yeah. Um, some of them are really, really struggling with a lack of human interaction. On the other side, we have families, for example, who, and there's such an array of experiences happening behind closed doors with families that again, businesses need to be aware of that. Some people are so grateful for the opportunity to slow down come back home, reconnect with their kids, reconnect with their, with their wife or their, their partner, their husband, and be able to have this quality family time that they haven't been able to having through the busyness of the world out there. I'm one of them. I'm definitely one of them. Well, you're lucky because the reality is on the other side, you've got people who they've had relationship problems and stresses and there is metaphorical dirt under the carpet that people were able to avoid by being busy out there in the world, overworking, over-exercising, socializing out there, doping with their mates, um, having affairs. And now that they've pushed back into the house, that carpet has been pulled back on that dirt. And there's some people who are going through a really tumultuous time because they're having to face the relationship, familial problems that were always bubbling under that they were able to avoid. And those individuals facing that, it's very difficult for them to be proactively engaging in taking their business or their team forward. So there's more considerations around the human experience that we're dealing with now that we've never really had to deal with at this acute or magnified level before. For sure. I mean, it's crazy, right? But I agree. I mean, so I've, I definitely enjoyed the first probably four or five weeks. And I tell you why, because I was busy. And then probably about a week or so ago, I definitely dipped. I definitely had my little uh, nego moments or self-doubt. So um, yeah, I, I, I can relate. And I think I was busy because I knew I just had to get shit done. I'd uh, transform the business and move the team. And what I found is I actually enjoyed innovating what we were doing, really 
I loved it actually. It was really cool fun. So I get that. And I think it, I think that came around because I was waiting for other people to make decisions, some big sponsors. And I suppose there was that moment of doubt of were they going to go ahead and transition and work with us on the new way forward or was it going to have to make another plan? So I suppose um, that, that, that was sort of what brought that self-doubt around. But, but um, generally I had all these goals that I also wanted to reach. And I actually, I thought about the lockdown, I actually looking forward to it. I was looking forward to being at home, to being with my family. I think it's because I've been working since I was 15 years old, so it was a good time to to stop actually for a second. It's not like I wasn't working hard, but just to look at other things. But what I realized is there was a lot of things that I wrote down that I wanted to do that I didn't end up doing. Yeah, so I, I think I've had a chance to reflect and and almost reevaluate my goals. Not that I've got them, but to, to almost look at things in a different way in terms of winning or succeeding or profits into other things, simple things to make me happy. I think that's what COVID's certainly done for me. Yeah. So I think one, one of the things we've sort of learned over the years and maybe a couple of generations now that success is measured in with some material metric of money or position or power or whatever it might be. Uh, and we really lost sight of the fact that success is also a felt experience. Uh, and we think when I have the money or the house or the car, the position, then I'll be happy, I'll be content, I will feel fine. And quite often it's we unconsciously seeking that experience of what we think someone who has that stuff has or what experience we think we'll have once we've got achieved that goal. Um, but it's also worth asking, so what, what is the felt experience I want to have in life? What's important? Is it a peace of mind and a sense of connectedness and fairly stress-free and whatever it might be, you know, just, yeah, feel chilled, enjoy myself, feel effect, a sense of satisfaction. And when we look at it like that, we realize actually that's available to us all the time and every day. And that's the thing that I think a lot of people are coming in touch with now when we've had the world out there and interacting with the world out there largely taken away from us. And what we're doing now is we're sitting with ourselves. Um, and again, there's a great range. You know, the there's some people who are very uncomfortable with actually sitting in the silence and sitting with themselves and having this amount of time to really experience what it feels like to be Paddy Upton or Ralph Fletcher. Um, and unfortunately, what, what has been happening and one of the ways that people are, are distracting themselves from actually sitting and learning more about themselves is being out there on social media and in interacting with the world and the way that the world's interacting with it, with us now. And unfortunately, one of the ways that it's happening is bringing us news and statistics and stories and conspiracy theories and everything in between about COVID. And it's just increasing the anxiety um, in so many people by reading the stuff, buying into it. Um, they're actually distracting themselves from being, finding that sort of peace and inner contentment that sits there anyway but that is covered up with the busyness of the world or materialism 
or what you know what happens in a lot of places is the the fear mongering and fear sells. So I mean, it's just a real red flag to you know people listening. If you're feeling anxiety or um, you're feeling stressful, you're feeling fearful, which a lot of people are, just consider the relation between that and how much social media and media and media reports you're reading, and consider. You know, what do you feel like? There's WhatsApp groups. Everyone's now on a handful of WhatsApp groups. And some WhatsApp groups are bringing to us all the doom and gloom and the video of the shop getting looted or the person getting arrested or some traumatic incident somewhere that there's always been. But that traumatic incident, we read that and consume it. And we think that, wow, this is what's happening all over the country and all over the world. Like, no, that just happened at that time, in that moment. And at the same time, there was a truckload of peace and good and wonderful things happening in the world. But that's not being sent around on all of the, um, on social media. So just be really. Bad news sells, that's why. Yeah, and even, it's not even, and they're not even, there's not even a price tag on it now, but it's being distributed. And just watch how you feel when you, when you engage with that negative fear-mongering media, um, and I certainly know for myself now, I've, I've been in a really good, strong position. I've been through my, my process, but every now and again, I, I drop my guard and I watch some flippant videos someone sends me or I read some story, and at the end of it, I can feel it just sucks the lifeblood out of me. I feel flat. I, I start feeling angry. I start feeling anxious, and then straight away, I realize, damn it. I've done this to myself because I'm buying into the stuff that I'm reading where I know that that this is not the thing to do. Yes, there is decisions that are wrong. There are laws that are wrong. There are people doing the wrong thing. But the reality is on any given day pre-COVID, there was a truckload more stuff that was happening that was exponentially worse in terms of the way people were behaving. But we didn't distribute that as widely as we're distributing it now because we had stuff to do. Um, so it really is a buy, and it's we we are creating so much of the anxiety for ourselves now, way and beyond what the actual COVID is bringing to us, and way beyond what the global and national responses are to COVID. We, we the majority of the challenges that we're facing, at least at this early stage, is mental and emotional anguish, turmoil, anxiety, stress, fear, and we're doing it to ourselves. For sure, I, I get that, I, and I think there's a lot of like self-help books that say don't read the news. The first <laughs> number one, don't read the news and don't 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 read the papers. I mean, one of the things that I suppose the what one of the gifts I've got from coaching or reading about coaching is great coaches ask great questions, and maybe great leaders and great salespeople. But for for me, I, I think of and, and I think of still wanting success because I think everybody wants success in their own little way. And so, like, we spoke to Ian Williamson about um, Old Mutual and how they're investing. They've got a, a fund to help the nurses. And I said, well, that's not very commercially viable. And, and there's a whole lot of other things that they're doing that wouldn't make normal sense in terms of the return on investment or profit. But they're doing it because they see they've been going for 175 years. They've seen that investing in society impacts their organization and then you then i've got people like the the prime minister of new zealand who's said a couple of months ago we're going to stop measuring our country's success based on gdp growth 
and we're going to look at the wellness of our society. And then yeah. you mentioned changing our goals from winning to, to other things. I mean, are there good questions that you would sort of ask in each of those scenarios for a company, for a society, for an individual in terms of what success could look like? Um, yes. I mean, for me, it's, it's asking questions to scratch a little deeper than skin deep and maybe one level deeper than what people have generally thought about themselves, about success, about leadership, um, about the legacy that they maybe one day want to leave uh, and get people to, to have a, to really ask those deeper questions, you know, um, like how do you genuinely, how do you want to be one day remembered for your time at this business or your time in this team or your time in this leadership role? But genuinely, how do you want to be remembered? And not just by um, your fans or how do you want to be remembered by your children, you know? When they're one day sitting at your deathbed, you want to look at a really successful dad who didn't really know him that much because he spent so much time at the office. How do you want to be remembered by your partner? How do you want your competitors to remember you? Um, you know, you've got cricketers like David Warner, who's an unbelievable cricketer, and he's scored so many runs. But if you ask people, his competitors, you know, you know, if David Warner was struggling, you know, after cricket and he came and asked you for some money, would you give him a hand up? It's like, no, he was a successful cricketer, but he's not liked as a person because of the way he conducts himself. Um, so, it, and it's to ask, um, for me, I always ask the question, the, the, this metaphorical or in inverted commas, the, the insignificant or the small person in your life, maybe the, the janitor, the tea lady, the, the checkout teller at Pick and Pay or Woolworths, the, um, you know, the security guard. When I ask the security guard about you, what do you want the security guard to say about you? You know, I give the example of, you know, when we have these T20 cricket tournaments around the world, one of the things that happens is we have a team bus. And when we're at our home venue, at least, we always have the same bus and the same driver. So in, an, in the Indian Premier League for seven weeks. And there's some players who after the first bus trip, they know the bus driver's name. And after the third bus trip, they know where the bus driver's married and has got kids at home. And they will greet the bus driver by name each time they get on the bus. There are other players who at the end of the seven weeks, if the bus driver happened to be standing outside the bus and not sitting in his seat, the player would walk straight past them, wouldn't recognize them and wouldn't know their name. That bus driver will have different things to say about those two different individuals. Um, so what would you like those people to say about you? And have you thought about that even? And then once we have an idea of the kind of legacy, the kind of person we would ideally like to be, then we can start looking at, well, how am I doing in relation to how I would ideally like to be doing? Um, you know, I've often said, I don't want to die with a, a trophy cabinet full of, um, full of trophies. That will be uh, sports trophies. That will be so meaningless to me. And it's dying with a whole heap of money or having built a hugely successful company. At the end of the road, when you're on your deathbed and, you know, you're about to turn your toes up to push up some daisies, there's probably some more other things that will be more important than just being known as the guy who built a successful business. 
And it's to have those conversations now to be more intentional about the way we're living our lives and building whatever our success might look like. I mean, I look at, at your, your story is so intriguing and what you've achieved and the way you've done it. But there's also parts of it that are quite scary, um, like helping the homeless. I mean, the, the start of your book, that, that opening sort of story is, yeah, I mean, it's captivating, but it's scary for a lot of people like me. It's It's putting us in an uncomfortable position. And then backpacking through Asia and giving everything up. I mean, in a way, you've, you've, you've had, these are self-enforced COVIDs in, in many ways. I mean, I, the question I have is, is, do you have another, do you see that as, as something happening in your life you, you're going to pursue? Is there something that you're looking at in that sort of nature in the future? Um. You know, Ralph, I never, I never decided to go and work with street kids and work on the streets for two years. It, it happened. And when I look back on it, I, I can't even explain necessarily how it happened other than it was the thing that emerged. It was the opportunity that emerged and I was open to move with that opportunity and with no particular plan. And even when I, when I traveled, when I, when I left, you know, the cricket world and put a backpack on my back and traveled on a budget of $8 a day for six months. I wasn't, there wasn't any particular goal. There wasn't any particular strategy. I just, I felt that I needed to move out into the world and strip back, you know, the identities that I'd formed for myself of this guy who's got a couple of degrees and works, you know, in international cricket to me, I walked away from that because I touched the emptiness of the life that I was living because it was really, I was living in the playground of the ego. It was about looking good and, you know, and for a man in his, you know, mid-20s to travel the world with the international cricket team and be pay, be pretty well paid and meet the Queen and Nelson Mandela and dine in the best restaurants and um, have a couple of girlfriends in a few different cities. It was pretty, it was amazing. But I touched the. I was lucky, I guess, that I touched the emptiness of that so-called life of success, and it sort of got me to ask the question: well, I, I, This is what I thought success is, and this is what success looks like. But it doesn't feel like what I thought it would feel. It doesn't feel great. It looks great from the outside, but it didn't feel great. It felt quite empty. So I was, I guess, I was lucky to touch at a young age and, and most people do at some point we hit a certain level of success and you realize, wow, this is not quite what it's made out to be. You know, that if we'd use a, the pinnacle in sport, the example of the Olympic gold, you know, almost there's a concept that's well known and documented in, in psychology and it's called the post Olympic blues that the day or the day or weeks following an Olympic athlete winning a gold medal, they hit depression. Because one of the reasons is be that working towards achieving towards that race or that event and having the goal of winning Olympic gold gave purpose to their life and gave them reason to get up and to move forward every day. And once they'd achieved it, they wake up the next morning and there's a, a feeling of emptiness. And yes, you're excited, but after a while, you know, the all the handshakes and the high fives and the autographs, and eventually that doesn't actually 
deeply fulfill us as individuals. Um, and they hit the post-Olympic blues and then they get to realize that, wow, this thing I've been chasing is actually not what I thought it was. Um, I didn't think about the inexperience I'm happening, which some athletes really get right. You know, I've worked with people like Rahul Dravid, who is works on being a really grounded, secure, content human being in his life that whether he scored runs or didn't, it didn't make much of a difference to his felt experience in life. And when he retired, there wasn't a huge dip that he went through. You know, Hashim Amla worked on being a good person as well as being a good cricketer, where a lot of athletes just work on being a success on a successful athlete or a successful business person. And we don't spend time working on being a really happy, contented person who has a sense of connectedness and belongingness with their fellow people and use their position to, you know, to to serve a greater good, which actually is something that makes us feel wonderful, um, you know, as human beings is when we're in service of others is actually when very often we're at our most impactful and have our best felt experience of living. I mean, how are you, how are you that it was quite flippant philosophical, that, wasn't it? <laughs> Excuse that. Something, though, is listening to you, I'm going to change more. I've read, I've read the book, and, I, and, and, and the funny thing is you say these things, and I listen, and I'm like, geez, why can't I be doing more of that? Why can't I be doing more of it? And then I, I'm writing, why, why, why? Is, is it because I'm not writing these things down and making it clear in front of me, these intentional things? Is it my memory? Is it other things I'm, I'm trying to chase at the same time? Am I trying to do too much? So, I mean, for the people who get it right, is it because they've had some major challenge in their life that they've made that principle so strong and so endearing? Um, I, I mean, reading Brett's book and, and being introduced to someone like Doris, um, Joel Etherington, who, who yes. built both did what he sort of really wanted in a way and also was very humanitarian as well. I mean, that, that really appeals to me, but it scares the shit out of me. Yeah. I mean, to answer your first question, you know, Ralph, again, we're all different as humans. Some people have that epiphany in life and they change directions through a traumatic event. Very often it's losing someone close to them or having a stroke or a heart attack and it forces us to slow down to reevaluate the journey we're on. Now, COVID is doing that for many of us. For other people, and that's sort of a, a reactive change in the, in, the diff, in the course of direction of our life, we don't have to wait for that event. We can be proactive. And that's just really about, you know, being open enough to go, you know what, uh, this is everything's good and I'm really happy, but I think it could be better. And let me go deeper within and start asking some more deep and meaningful questions around my life, how I'm living my life, where I'm going, what it looks like, and can I do even a bit better, which might be better, might be just working a bit less and spending a bit more time at home and with my kids and, and on working on my physical health because there's no point getting to 55-year-old and retiring with a truckload of money when you when your health is gone to pot, your relationship's gone to pot and um, your stress levels and your anxiety levels are, are so high that you end up having, a, as soon as you retire and you walk away, you have the stroke. And then you, it's, that's quite sad when someone has chased something so hard to the detriment of 
their health, their well-being, their family, people close to them. Um, you know, often we even lose friendships along the way because we, you know, behave like a bit of a dick. Uh, you know, we, we all know people who've done that. And it's, you know, it's, it's unfortunate. And, you know, I just, I, I, I guess for me, one of the reasons why I speak so passionately about this is, you know, I invite people to be proactive and don't wait for that to happen, you know, in our lives. Have a look at things. Have a look and take the fancy suits and the fancy clothes off. Get out of your fancy car. Just go and stand in your underwear in front of the mirror and have a real good look. Who's this person looking back at me or who am I looking at and how much do I really deeply like this person when I strip myself of my identity and everything that we, the material stuff that we cover ourselves up and we put out as our suit of armor for the rest of the world to see and ask that question. Do I like what I'm seeing now? And how can I, I like it even a little bit more when I'm in the privacy of my own home, just standing here in my underwear. Wow. If, if that doesn't get you changed, I don't know what will, to be honest. Um, and, and I actually felt that change when I read your book and I, and I really enjoyed it. And kudos to you for sharing what you do, because I think you make the world a better place by doing that. So, I mean, where, where do you see the future post-COVID? I mean, where do you see – there's a lot of challenges in Africa, South Africa. We've got our politics. How, how are you feeling about the future? So there's, a, there's a, quite a lot of things that are going to be so much better or so much to look forward to. I mean – First of all, the, the, the obvious place to start is, you know, I'm an outdoor environmental, I'm an ocean lover, and I'm absolutely loving the dance of joy and happiness that mother, every aspect of Mother Nature is busy having at the moment. I'm She's flipping A big pardon? She's very noisy, Mother Nature, right now. Oh, she's as happy as can be. So I'm loving that. We've got so much to look forward to. Um, yeah. As human beings, a lot of people are going to get to press a really important reset button, reset around our priorities, uh, what's important, who's important, the kind of stuff that actually counts and sustains life. So a lot of us are going to have such an awesome reset. Um, and in the, the new norm and the way we're going to be moving forward, I, I really do see those who get it right, those countries, organizations, businesses, families, individuals, there's going to be so much more of a social awareness, a community orientation. Um, it's there's so much to look forward to. Now the the reality is that not everybody is going to move with and into that light. Um, there are going to be a lot of people who are going to struggle, um, and the un, that's unfortunate. And the, you know we're going to have to help people who, through no fault of their own are going to struggle, which is largely going to be, you know, the poor, the poor are, we're going to need to muck in and, and be a lot more community and service oriented. And the thing that businesses had for last 20, 30 years, this triple bottom line, we're going to start where it's largely been um, window dressing. It's going to come home. We're going to really realize the value and the importance of that. There are also going to be casualties <clears throat> and that's what I'm interested in at the moment is the people who, the individuals, the organizations who don't manage themselves well, get caught up in the trappings of the downward negative spirals of thoughts, emotions, decisions, um, 
inertia now who are actually going to sink in some format or another. And so much of that's going to be unnecessary. Um, and I'm really interested in like how many people can we get through this to the other side and into the light and not caught up in, I said, the dark, the negativity, the downward spiral, the unnecessary mental, emotional, and spiritual obstacles that are placed in front of us that we all need to navigate past to get ourselves into a new, better, stronger position and more into, you know, our light, our truth, our authenticity, our heart, whatever you want to call it. Um, it's a beautiful journey, but it's not going to be an easy journey. Um, but we all have the ability to emerge the other side in some form of butterfly, uh, metaphorical butterfly. And I mean, for, for those people who do have those sort of people in their lives, are there things they can do to help them? Or is it, is it really a, a matter of people being able to only move themselves? No, we need to help each other. We're in this together, you know, more, more than we've ever before. We're in this together. We need to be helping each other as much as we need to be reaching out for help when we need it. Particularly the successful driven um, alpha male um, who we're all, we always call it the, the tough guy, smiley face mask, I'm okay, I'll be out there in the trenches and leading people and appearing strong. And, you know, a lot of folk like that are going to need to get beneath the facade and get a, get a whole lot more real and be okay with struggling with difficulties uh, and move beyond that cowboys don't cry, um, tough guys don't cry. Um, so being uh, authentic honest and open, I suppose, is the... Yeah, just being real. You know, I'm having a shit day. I'm really struggling. It's okay. It's normal. We all expect it. But that's the first part to navigating our way through it rather than putting on the brave smiley face mask, which, again, when I was in my early 20s and with a cricket team, I, I did that all the time. And I just found out how difficult and stressful it was to always appear to be the guy who's always in control, always happy, always, you know, up there, always leading always good inside it was never the case but i projected that outside and it was stressful exhausting and uh, not very uh, sure. nurturing at all or healthy when he was um, in his moment he tried to forgive all the people he hated and uh have <laughs> good thoughts and that also released a lot of tension as well for him just yep. you know don't, don't worry about your competition you've got to worry about yourself yeah. And, and he didn't so much release the people that he hated. He released the hate from within himself. Hating someone, being envious of someone, being jealous of someone. It's just like drinking poison and us drinking poison and hoping the other person's going to die. For sure. Paddy, it has been amazing talking to you. I could speak to you all day long. I think you know that. And um, I'm grateful for your time. And no doubt you're helping lots of people through this. So hopefully this will, will help even more people with your pearls of wisdom and insights. It was an absolute awesome. pleasure to have you on board. Thank you so much, Ralph. Really appreciate the invitation to chat. It was fantastic. Hopefully we can catch up in the neighborhood sometime. But uh, I signed in, that document. In the neighborhood, in the surf, please. <laughs> have you gone for a surf? Honestly, I'm, I'm envious because I've been a good boy. No, I can say with all honesty, I've been very tempted, but I don't want to be that guy. Just because I, all the mates like you, we, we 
it's almost like a respect for each other than more respect for the law saying, you know, we're not going to get in the water. Let's all not get in the water. And I know there's one or two guys who have, and I, I think they might struggle to get waves when the rest of us get back in. They've had their <laughs> waves now. We get back in. I got back from Indo the day lockdown started, basically. So I was in self-isolation. So I feel like I had my little bit of joy before the lockdown. So I'm okay. I'm okay. And and you know what? The waves are empty and it wasn't that great because you actually miss other people being part of that situation. So it's not always great when there's empty waves, believe me. Correct. We were worried about getting home, so... But anyway, lo- love to see you in the water. Cheer okay. up there. Um, yeah. Thank you so much. All right, Ralph. All the best, eh?